I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Ephesians, chapter 1. We are looking uh, at uh, Ephesians 1, 1 through 2, verse 10 this fall, in a series I'm calling A Great Salvation, taking that phrase, of course, from the book of Hebrews, where the writer says, uh, you know, he warns us about neglecting. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? And uh, I can think of no finer exposition of various facets of that salvation than here in Ephesians 1 on into Ephesians 2. Today, we are looking at Ephesians 1, verses 5 and 6. Let's, uh, to kind of get a running start in the passage, begin with verse 3 and read through verse 6. So hear the Word of God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Let us pray. Father, we praise you and thank you that you are a God who has revealed yourself to us, Father, in various times, various ways throughout the Old Testament, and Lord, revealing yourself in your Son, a Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, now as we read this inspired witness to Him, the very Word of God, Lord, unfolding this salvation that You have accomplished for us, we pray, Father, for Your Spirit to understand the things that You have for us here. We pray, Father, that You would give us hearts that are eager to hear from You and to act on what we hear from You, to believe the truth we find here. Lord, to repent where we need to repent to embrace, uh, Lord, this sonship, this adoption that is ours, and so live, Lord, as your children. Father, we thank you that your food, your, your word, rather, is food for our souls, and pray that it would nourish us. And Father, we pray that by your grace, we would worship you as we hear and think about your word in the very preaching of your word, that you'd be exalted and we worship you. Father, bless now the preaching of your word to our growth in grace and the building of your church. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. If you are a Christian here this morning, then you are a child of God. That is not a metaphor. That is the reality. You are a child of God. God is your father. You are his child. Sometimes we just need to stop and let that sink in. We're used to that terminology, but do you ever stop and just think about what that means? Well, we want to do that a little bit this morning as we look at this passage. It is something of a a sadness that uh, the doctrine of our adoption is somewhat neglected not only with believers, but even if you study books on theology, 
Adoption can often get lost in the glories and even the debates over the nature of justification and over the true nature of sanctification, you know, how we're to be right with God, how we're to live before God. And sometimes we don't even mention it in, at all. In fact, yesterday I was talking in the Explorers class about what the Bible's about. It's about justification, sanctification, and glorification. How to get right with God, how to live before God, and our hope of being in glory with God. And one reason for that is we sometimes subsume adoption under justification. And it is a part of our justification, and yet it is a distinct doctrine on its own. And one that, like I said, tends to be neglected. And that's somewhat puzzling because it is a precious and glorious doctrine. Our adoption as children of God. It's also a prominent doctrine because throughout the scriptures, even in the Old Testament, the idea of God as the father of his people and Israel as his son is there. And certainly when we move into the New Testament, we see this this reference of God as our father and we are his children throughout the New Testament. In fact, when Jesus, in response to his disciples' request, teaches them how to pray, what we know as the Lord's Prayer, the very first words are our Father. So this idea of God as our Father and we as his children, not merely generally, but individually, is prominent throughout the Scriptures. So as we look at verses uh, 4, 5, and 6, and we'll have to deal with the very ending of verse 4, which we'll do, I want us to look at several aspects of, of this adoption as children. And first, we find at the very end of verse 4 uh, is, is God's motive, the motive behind our adoption. Now, last week, looking at verse 4, looking at God's choosing us even before the creation of the world, we can't look at adoption without at least some reference to that. God chose us to be saved even before he made the the world. And then as you get to the end of verse 4, you have these words, in love. Now, it's not clear whether those words go with verse 4, what came before them, or whether they go with verse 5, what follows them. And remember, the, the verse divisions were added much later. And Paul wrote Hebrew or Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 as one long sentence, without any verses, without even any periods. So in love, just kind of fit in the middle of it all. But the, the editors of our English Bible not only use the verses, but the, the periods. And thankfully, they do kind of break up what was one long sentence, makes it easier for us to read it and to study it. But the question, does it go before? Uh, does it go with that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, as if love was at least a major part of what it meant to be holy and blameless, that love was an expression of that holiness and uh, blamelessness. And others put it with verse 5, in love, he predestined us to adoption. So to put it another way, is love a way that we show holiness, blamelessness, or is love a motive from which God predestined us to be his children? And if you look at the grammar, it ends in a tie. It really is somewhat inconclusive, which is why there's a question. However, if you look at the context, uh, it does seem, at least to me, to point to in love referring to God, not to us. 
And it's true if you read through Ephesians, I was studying the, you know, where the word love occurs in Ephesians, and quite a few times it does speak of Christians' love for each other. Now, whichever way it goes, certainly love should be part of our holiness and our blamelessness before God. And Ephesians speaks to our loving one another. But Ephesians also speaks to God's love for us. For example, in chapter 2, verse 4, it says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. So there it speaks of love as a motive for God doing something for us, namely regeneration, making us alive when we were dead in our sins. And I think that's the case here. I think that this use of the word love in love uh, is referring to what God did. And so the ESV goes that way, the NIV, the New American Standard all take it the same way, period after uh, blameless, and then uh, before him, and then period, in love, he predestined us. So I understand it that way, and we're going to look at it that way, although just know that there is some measure of debate. And so God predestined us to be his children. He chose us to save us. He For the creation of the world, he predestined us to adoption as his children, not because he had to, but because he wanted to, because he loved us and wanted to make us part of his family. Uh, The scriptures say he did this because of the, the purpose of his will. I think a better way to render that could be the good pleasure of his will. It's not just that he purpose to. He was happy to. He, he wanted to. He delighted to. He delighted to do it because of his love for us. So while verse 4 points to God's choosing us to make us holy in Christ, even before he created the world, verse 5 points to his predestining us to be, if we could say just, not just forgiven, as magnificent as that is, but also his children. So that's the motive. God loved us. Second, we see the timing of our adoption, the motive behind our adoption, and then the timing of our adoption in verse 5. He predestined us. As I said last week, if you don't like words like predestination, election, choosing, you've got a problem because the words are in the Bible. As I said last time, it's not whether you believe in predestination, not whether you believe in election. The words are there. The question is, what do you believe about them? You might not agree with the Westminster Confession understanding, the Reformed understanding of those terms, but you can't simply say, well, I I don't even believe in predestination. Well, then what do you do when the word occurs right here? Well, the the word to predestine literally means to, to mark out beforehand, just pretty pretty much what we would expect. And it's just saying God marked out his people, those he chose to save in Christ, to make holy and blameless. He also marked them out in advance for adoption. And it goes along with verse four. He saved us, chose us that we'd be holy and blameless. And in that capacity, predestined us to be adopted, to be his children, his holy and blameless children. Forgiven sinners, yes, but also members of the family of God. So it wasn't an afterthought. It was his purpose from the beginning that we should be his children. That said, when we talk about his choosing before the creation of the world, we talk about predestining, it's important to realize this happens when we believe. Being elect does not save you. Trusting in Jesus saves you. Now, if you are elect, you will 
eventually at some point in your life, early or late, in the middle, believe in the Lord Jesus and be saved. But remember when the Philippian jailer said to Paul, what do I have to do to be saved? He didn't say, make sure you're elect. He said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. And it's the same thing with adoption. I mean, he's predestined us for adoption. It's true that we don't actually become God's children until such point as we actually do repent, trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior. And then at that point, we most assuredly are forgiven. We most assuredly are his children in Christ. Speaking of which, notice verse 4, just as he chose us in Christ, that is, he chose us before the creation of the world, yet he did so with reference to what Jesus would do for us in him. So here, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. None of this is done in just the bare abstract. All of this is done, is choosing us, is predestining us for adoption, is done with reference to Jesus as the Savior. Now remember Revelation, the Lamb slain as it appeared from before the creation of the world. He chose Christ, 1 Peter 1, to be the Redeemer before the creation of the world. And so this is all with an eye toward what Jesus would do for us. In verse, verse 6, you'll note, skipping down a little bit, verse 6 reiterates that this, that this blessing is in the beloved, that is, in this, the one he loves, in Jesus, that all of this takes place. John uh, 14, 6, Jesus' well-known statement, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Uh, one reason that's true is that the Father chose us in Christ and that he predestined us for adoption through Jesus. And so that's why there is no way but Jesus. So we see there the, the, the motive behind it and the love of God. We see there the timing of our adoption, or at least our being predestined for adoption, was also, like verse 4, before the creation of the world that he predestined us for adoption. And then third, the meaning of our adoption. We've been talking about it, but what is it? What does it mean? It says, God predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. We're adopted, it says, to himself. That is, of course, to God, to God himself, which on the one hand seems pretty obvious, but on the other hand, Paul wrote those words, and we can't help but think maybe that Paul is just spelling it out because it's such an amazing thing. I mean, it's amazing when any, any parents adopt a, children, a child to themselves to be part of their family. But here it's God who adopts us to himself, to belong to him. And maybe Paul just puts those words, spells it out out of a sense of amazement, out of a sense of wonder. Uh, for adoption to himself as sons. Now, in Paul's day, the sons were the ones who would uh, receive the inheritance. And we'll talk more about inheritance as we go through Ephesians 1. But it's safe to say, as far as Christians are concerned, that includes men and women, male and female, that we're all together equal members of the household of God. But then what does it mean? What are the implications of being adopted, of being a son or daughter of God himself? Well, let me list a couple of of benefits that come with that. And one, it does mean that we are part of the family of God, just as an adopted child is now part of his new family, full full membership in that family. Uh, We are forgiven sinners, 
And that's true, and that's a glorious thing. We praise God for that. And more than that, we're, we are actually positively righteous in Christ before God, and we praise God for that. But even beyond that, we are adopted into his family. We are children of God. We have the privilege of addressing God as Father in the full meaning of that term. All that a perfect Father would be, God is for us. All earthly fathers fall short. However, uh, our fathers may have failed us, maybe badly. Yet it still stands that God is the perfect model of fatherhood by which we are all measured, to which we should all strive to attain. And however great our earthly fathers are or may have been, God is better because he is a perfect his father, the very epitome, the very model of fatherhood. And we can think of all that that means. He is kind, he is loving, he is patient, he is gentle, he is supportive, he is a wise counselor for us. He is a protector of us. Which just goes to say that as Christians, we're not God's subjects. We're not just God's salvation projects. We're his children. We belong to him, and he loves us. We are his children. At one time, we were not, but God adopts us, and he makes us as much a part of his family, as much children of his, as Jesus. He makes us as much a part of his family as Jesus. In fact, Jesus is our elder brother. And the scriptures speak of this in a number of places where Jesus himself acknowledges us to be part of the family. In Luke 8, when Jesus was speaking to the crowds and somebody came up to him and said, you know, Psst, your, your mother and your brothers are here. They'd like to see you. What does Jesus say? He said, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. He wasn't sliding his biological family. He was simply acknowledging the reality that we are his family who belong to his Father and ours. Or think of Romans 8, where Paul speaks of this relationship of Jesus as our brother uh, in several places, several times. Verse 29 he says, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. Or rather astoundingly, especially if we know ourselves or if we know big brothers, Hebrews 2.11, which says, Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. Remember, he's our big brother. He's our elder brother. And he's not ashamed to call us his brothers and, yes, his sisters. He's not ashamed of us. I know me, that's saying a lot, that he's not ashamed of us. It's pretty staggering. So he is our elder brother. And that means being part of the family, we're also heirs. We have an inheritance in the family with Jesus. Paul is clear on that. Romans 8, 16 and 17 where Paul says the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. In other words, there's that the Holy Spirit assures us of this adoption. And it says, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, 
provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. In other words, that we're, we belong to him and we're identified with him as his people. Uh, Hebrews 1 verse 2 says, Jesus is the heir of all things. And we, as part of his family, part of the same family, are heirs uh, with him of all things. The whole new heavens and new earth will be ours and all that is in it, all the joys of it. Now, those are some of the, the privileges of belonging to the family, being heirs within the family. Jesus is our big brother, our elder brother. Uh, but there are also some responsibilities that come with being part of this family, as there are other families. Just to mention a couple, uh, one is to strive by God's grace in Christ to be holy. Holiness is the defining characteristic of the family of God. Families kind of have their personalities. The personality of God's family is holiness. And so we want to maintain uh, that, that family likeness in our own lives as best we can. Later on in Ephesians, in chapter 5, verse 1, Paul would say, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. In other words, just as children who love their father and know that they are loved by their father have a tendency to imitate them. And we've all seen this, and especially if you raise children, you've seen their, their tendency to imitate. Uh, to, sometimes it can be dismaying, but to imitate to their parents in, in phrases or the way they'll say something or even gestures or mannerisms. And you see the, you see the parent in the child. Well, that's what Paul is saying here. Be imitators of God as beloved children. We are called to be like him. We should want to be like him. And it's worth noting, Paul says, be imitators of God after giving a lengthy description of what it looks like to be godly in the Christian life. And that description ends with these verses. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. So we're not left in the dark to know what Paul has in mind when he says be imitators of God. You know, he, he lists some pretty specific things there. And I guess listing it as a responsibility, it also actually is a privilege, but the responsibility to submit to God's chastening, to God's discipline, to undergo the Father's discipline and training. You're probably familiar with the passage from Hebrews 12, where Paul says, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he, God, disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Be imitators of God. And, and when God brings difficulties into our lives, receive it as training, 
this discipline that we might be more holy. Remember, God saved us to be holy, that we might be more holy and, and more like our Heavenly Father. So as we've gone through this, we've seen the motive behind our adoption, the timing of it, we've seen the meaning of it, and then fourth and last, we want to look at the result of our adoption. What is the result of it? What comes from this? Well, many things for us, certainly, but this speaks of it here, first, is its result for God. What does this result in for God himself? It says, Verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So first of all, one result, one fruit that arises out of our adoption is that of praise to God. God is glorified, exalting God, specifically for his glorious grace to us, not only in saving us, as if the words not only apply there, but not only in saving us, but on top of that, adopting us into his family. And it is by grace that means there's nothing we've ever done or doing, could ever do, that would in any way earn this or in any way obligate God to bless us with this great adoption. It is all of His grace, and God and His grace are exalted and, and praised in our adoption. You think about that, I think about my own prayers as I was studying this this last week and and thinking about what do we thank God, things that we thank God for. What do we thank God for? Well, we thank Him for our salvation. Uh, We thank Him for forgiving us. We thank Him for providing for us. We thank Him for guidance and, and leading us. But do we ever stop at our prayers to thank God for adopting us? Thank you for adopting me into your family. Thank you, Father, that I'm called by your name. Thank you that you are my heavenly Father. So that's, that's one result of adoption that comes out. But the second one, and uh, one that's pretty obvious, but I'm going to mention it because Paul himself mentions it in the passage, and that is adoption is a blessing of God to us. He goes on, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. And again, to, to think that we are children of God and, and no mere metaphor. We actually belong to him. He is our father. We are his children. And to praise him for his grace that of all things, he should adopt us into his family. That should kindle a sense of wonder, a, a sense of astonishment. And it's, I think the flavor of that is what we find in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. Words written by the apostle John an apostle uh, of Jesus who knew Jesus in the flesh as well as anyone and better than most. The apostle John who wrote Revelation, which we recently spent a few weeks in. Well, in 1 John 3, verse 1, the apostle John says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And then he exclaims, and so we are. And so we are. And even so, what we are now is not yet what we shall be, is it? We speak of the already and the not yet, what we already have in Jesus, but what we do not yet enjoy, but will with his return when he comes back. And so, This applies, this principle of the in-between, the already but what we don't yet have, all of that applies to the doctrine of adoption with a vengeance. 
Because for all that we enjoy now as sons and daughters of God, as children of God, we will enjoy so much greater then. You know, we're not an orphan now. We are children of God now. And yet we have not yet come into what it fully means to be children of God, be part of the household of God in glory. In that same passage, to continue with 1 John 3 uh, that we just read, John continues from that and he writes this. Beloved, we are God's children now. And we are. That's the already. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. John emphasizes that. We are children of God now. And yet we can scarcely imagine what we will be when we are like him, when we see him as he is. There will be many scarcely imaginable blessings and joys and delights in our inheritance and when we come into our inheritance in heaven. But John singles out what probably is the greatest uh, blessing of that inheritance of all, and he names it here, we will be like Jesus Did we become gods? No, that's not what he's saying. What he is saying here is we will be like Jesus, sinless. Sinless. Would you not agree that perhaps the greatest aspect of our inheritance is never again to be tempted to sin? Never again to give thought to it. Never again certainly to fall to temptation, but to be sinless. Holy, as he is holy. And after all, as verse 4 tells us, isn't that why God chose us to begin with? That we should be sinless, that we should be holy and blameless before him. And not just as justified sinners, which we are now, but adopted children. Children loved so much more than we can know. Let's pray. Thank you, Father. Thank you for loving us. Lord, thank you, despite everything we deserve, saving us. Thank you for adopting us. Thank you for the privilege of being part of the household of God, children of God. Thank you that we have the right We have the privilege to call you Father. It's in Jesus' name we pray and call you Father. Amen.